Well, we will be in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians again this morning. This will be the third message on verses 1 through 13 of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, third and final on that section. Paul has been speaking of the ministry of the new covenant again, the, new, the gospel, and about how he has labored that no fault be found with him in his ministry, in his work, nothing that he has done to put people off, nothing that he has omitted to prevent them from hearing the word, and he has worked hard to put no stumbling block in anyone's way. And then he goes through a list of the trials that he has had to show he has endured all of these things and done right. You know, blessed when he was cursed kind of things. And showing them again that he has put nothing to stumble anyone in their way. And now in verses 11 through 13, he turns himself to talking to the Corinthians about where they are in dealing with this, where they are in the problems that have been happening in the church as the church has been um, distracted and even split over man following. And these high-minded philosophers have come in, perhaps both from the Jews and the Gentile side, influenced by what goes on in that part of Greek, Greece where they follow the Greek uh, gurus and their teachings. And they've learned to find the best and look for the best, the smartest, the most clever, the one who has the biggest following, the most money, the best life, the best looking. And they follow that man. And I've been calling those the scholastics, people in the church who have been influenced by the Greek philosophy and rhetoric and all of those wonderful things that make men proud of themselves, but lacking in the knowledge of God. So Paul in this chapter is, or in this section, is finishing up by applying all of this to the people of Corinth that he's been saying. Uh, before we look at that, let us go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing and your strength on us as we consider this passage again and look at the closing remarks. Clear our hearts, Lord, of the things we need in our weekly life, in our daily life. Clear our hearts and minds from all of those things that we may focus on your day, on you and your word. Be, Lord, with the words of my mouth and the ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So let us read the first 13 verses of chapter 6 together. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 13. <clears throat> Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and the Holy Spirit in genuine love, by truthful speech, 
and with the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So Paul in verse 11 has turned his thoughts to the Corinthians. Speaking of his ministry again, speaking of their reaction to it, their reaction to him as a pastor and his team as the ministers. And it's good for us to see. I've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. I want to examine the text here because it's quite amusing. The original text is very well translated by the King James. Ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, the ESV, the NASB do a pretty good job of interpreting the passage and giving us a more idiomatic translation in this case. Although neither of them claims to be an idiomatic translation, there are passages like this where the words just make no sense when they're put together. And you have to think about it. Now, I want to note the, the two verbs in there, being open and enlarged, are in the perfect tense in Greek. The Greek perfect tense is used to describe the completed action which produces a result that's still in effect today. I have believed. Right? That's a classic example. What does it mean? Well, at some point in the past, I heard the gospel and I believed. And now I am still a believer, so I have believed that it has an effect on today. And that's the important part of what that tense does in Greek. And in English, the meaning is pretty easily translated. But in other cases, like here, it's a little harder. I have believed, notice there are two ideas, right? It's the completed action, the continuing result. In our passage, it's literally, our mouth has been opened towards you. What does that mean? I'm blowing bad breath? I... The the Greek there is just hard for us to understand because it's an idiom. I remember telling somebody once in Cambodia that I didn't have enough water, meaning I was getting thirsty, and everybody laughed. I'm like, why? I need water. No, it's an idiom in their language. It means you're crazy. You're suffering from heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Uh, Here we have an idiom that just doesn't translate into English very well. The first phrase, their mouth was open towards you. If we think about the open mouth, we'll we'll look at the details later. But their mouth was open in the past. It continues to be open today. And that opening of their mouth in that way has had a result. And the second phrase, our heart was enlarged towards you. Again, some point in the past, his heart was enlarged, and it continues to be enlarged towards them today. So let's look at the first phrase. 
Our mouth has been opened to you. Both the ESV and the NASV interpret this idiom to mean the Apostle Paul in his dream spoke freely with the Corinthians, hiding nothing, holding nothing back, giving them everything that would be useful to them to know and to believe, especially things concerning the Lord, things concerning the doctrine about him and about what he requires of us, how to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus. This is... Um, very important. He wants us to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so he has put no stumbling block in their way. He has blocked them not at all. His, his mouth is fully open. He is freely speaking everything to them and refraining from nothing. Paul had spoken to them about this matter back in chapter 2. So, oh, before I do that, we do see this same idea of the mouth in the Old Testament. And I wanted to Bring that to mind right now. In a prophecy about the impending punishment of Israel, I mean Egypt, Ezekiel was going to be told, was told by God, in that day I will cause a horn to spring up in the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them, that they may know I am the Lord. Ezekiel 29:21, meaning God was going to speak through Ezekiel to the people. His lips would be open. And this is, Paul is saying the same thing. You know, my mouth is open to you. I am speaking the words of the Lord to you freely without restraint that you may know what God has in his mind concerning you. So Paul had talked about this back in chapter 2 before I jumped ahead here. We are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved among, and among those who are perishing. To one, we are the fragrance of death to death, to the other, life to life. Who is sufficient for the, these things? For we are not, like many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Second Corinthians 2, 15 through 17. These scholastics, like many, going, many to this very day, were nothing more than peddlers. They sold God's word to people who wanted to buy what they wanted to hear. And they didn't dare to give offense to their pagan cultural sensibilities. They didn't want to reveal the truths of God that they wouldn't like. So they just edited it and made what they want and said what they could get away with, said what would make people happy, what would make people join them, what would make people give their money, the money, what would make their empire grow. And that's a very sad state of affairs. We talked about how that is really putting a stumbling block in the way of the gospel and the way of heaven. Even when it is done by believing ministers who care more about their ministry's success than their ministry's effectiveness. Paul, on the other hand, was very different in the way he approached his ministry as one commissioned by God and answerable to God who would stand before God on the day of judgment and give an account for his ministry and for those he affected. Uh, when he was on his way to Jerusalem, where every prophet in every village and every town and every port told him that he was going to be arrested and bound and tied and suffer, so he knew what he was getting into, he gave kind of a farewell address to the Ephesian elders and he said to them, And now behold, I know that none of you whom among I have been going about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. 
They were trying to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem. And he said, therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. If I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Note by implication, those who do not preach the whole counsel of God are guilty of the blood of those who should have heard the truth, who should have been convicted of their sins, but have not been and continue in their sins, potentially in ignorance or thinking they've gotten away with it. If he would just preach what they needed to do, they would hear and be responsible for themselves. But there were many who tickled the ear. They, they omit the things that will offend people and only say the things that will make them happy. They adjust scripture as they please like peddlers. And we don't want to get back into that. We've covered that in great detail. But those who do not teach the whole counsel of God are guilty of the blood of men who sin without being taught, reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness by the elder from the word of God. I'm thinking of 2 Timothy 3.16 there. Paul continues in his message to the elders who came out to see him. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flocks in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. That certainly is the most dangerous part. Men rise up within the church. I want a better gospel that's less offensive, that's more acceptable, that's more populous, that will fill the church. And they want to stop the preaching of the word, all of the, the whole counsel of God. He continues, oh, he says, they do this to draw away disciples after themselves, which is what was happening in Corinth while Paul was away. He says, therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And I now commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Paul here is speaking of this problem that he's having in Corinth and had in it pretty much every city he stayed in, that other men would try to lead the disciples after them to gain the followers, to gain the prestige, the power, and the wealth. And that was really a destructive thing in the church. And so he gives that warning. They may appear to be lambs, but they are wolves, ravenous wolves who will rend the flock. And this problem was everywhere. But the real problem is men don't want to hear the truths that Paul was speaking of, the truths of the scriptures. We don't want to be told that the things we love are sin and God hates them. We don't want to turn from our sin. We want to continue in the things we are comfortable in. And they wanted Paul and others to turn away from those things that give offense. But Paul and every true minister, every true teacher want us to hear those things. Indeed, God himself wants us to hear those things and mend our ways. In verse 3 and 4 of this chapter, Paul said he put no obstacles in anyone's way. And that's what he's talking about. He preached the whole counsel. Nothing was hidden from you so that you would know what you needed to do and how you needed to live and how you could do it and how you could achieve a life with God. 
In verse 4 through 10, he speaks about the suffering he has for doing that. Afflictions of every kind. Why was he afflicted? Well, we see a little bit of it in the trial before Felix in Caesarea, after he'd been arrested in Jerusalem. The high priests and the elders came and they said, We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the, profane the temple, but we seized him, Acts 24, 5, and 6. They were very upset with him for teaching the truth of God, the truth of salvation, whereas they had built up a false view of salvation in which your works of the law would account you righteous before God, and your works of the law, as long as they outweighed your sins, would mean you got into heaven. And they were very confident that they had enough of the works that they defined that they would go to heaven. And now they're being told that's all worthless. It's meaningless. One sin is enough to cast you into hell. Read the Old Testament more carefully. You know, you need to look for salvation outside of yourself. This was the whole purpose of the law. Look to Christ for salvation, and Christ has come. So they were very angry. They hated it. Don't preach that. Preach the necessity of the ceremonial law, and you'll be okay. We'll accept your sect. But if not, you're a ringleader of the of a wrong sect, and you're a plague on society. The pagans also were very upset with Paul. Everywhere he went, Paul spoke the truth concerning idols, and they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear that an idol was deaf and dumb and useless and at best represented a demon. In Acts chapter 19, there was a riot over this, and his accuser said, you see and hear not only... In Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying the gods made with hands are not gods, Acts 19.26. This is what led to the riot. And the educated in Greece were upset about their gods, but when he got over to particularly the areas where the philosophers lived, they were upset about the resurrection. Some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him, and they said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching foreign divinities, which was illegal in the Roman Empire. Because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection, that's Acts 17-18. Paul said to the Corinthians earlier, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, Folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 23-24. With everyone, everywhere he went, they took some exception to the whole counsel of God. There was something they hated. Now, he could, as a traveling preacher, have preached the whole counsel of God, but only parts of it in each city. Leaving out one part in one city and then preaching that part in a city where they didn't care. Uh, That's not what Paul did, though. He preached the whole council everywhere, particularly focusing on the thing that makes the local pagan unable to come to God. Your faith in circumcision and the ceremonial law to get you into heaven prevents you from coming to God. Your, Your faith in idols, whether they be idols of the true God or idols of pagan gods, 
that hinders your access to God. Your confidence in the wisdom, if man can't figure it out, then it can't be true. That prevents you from going to God. And everywhere he went, they had problems that they didn't want to hear what God said, and Paul would bring those problems, those preaching points to them from the scripture so that they would be able to come to God. And of course, preaching the whole counsel of God, including the parts the people hate, leads to Paul being hated. Leads to Paul having many adversities. And he mentions those, as I said earlier, in verses 4 through 11, but at much greater length in chapter 11. And in many other places, he hints at them. Why would he speak the truth in love and not make it less offensive, knowing that he would suffer all of these afflictions? Well, that is what we have been reading in chapter 6 and chapter 5 again. This is the work of ministers of the new covenant. Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, Paul says, To some he he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, all of those, the ministers of God, their main job is to equip the saints for ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all come to a unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God in a mature manhood the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And that basically seems to be what was happening to the Corinthians. And really, that's what preachers do who don't want to preach the whole counsel of God. They're essentially being deceitful and giving you false doctrine or giving you some true doctrine, but... By, by omitting certain truths, it's a false doctrine as far as the complete whole goes. And it's terrible, terribly destructive. But he's not the, that kind. He doesn't practice cunning or craftiness or deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is ahead into Christ. We can only grow up in Christ if we know what Christ wants, and we can only know what Christ wants if if we're taught the whole counsel of God, including the things we hate or the things we love being wrong. I told you before, when I was an atheist, first converted, listening to the Bible, I would listen to it in the car, and I was on a trip one day, and I just threw my hands up and said, God, everything I know is wrong, because all of the things I knew as a pagan that were absolute in society, that were true in society, were actually sin according to God. That's the way our society has become. But preaching the truth in love, or even just hearing the word itself, I was able to grow and build myself up in love and knowledge and and become a better person and a better Christian by recognizing, okay, I thought this was true, but God hates it. I thought this was right, but God says it's wrong. And the only way you can know and grow and be delighted in those things is if somebody tells you. Yes, the person who loves his sin and hates God, or loves his sin and tries to love God, but has two now masters, his sin and God, will despise what God's word says. But to the wise, a rebuke 
It's like the oil, the anointing oil poured on the head, the proverb says. It's, it's something that the wise delights in. And you're wise if you hear you're wrong from Scripture and you correct yourself. But why would he suffer all of these things? Well, that's where the next phrase comes in. Our hearts have been enlarged. We should all understand that idiom pretty directly, right? We're not speaking about heart disease. We're speaking about having our hearts swell with godly biblical love towards God's children. Think of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. A great Dutch theologian named Wilhelmus Abrekel explained it, and I'm just going to read what he wrote because I love it. A minister must excel in love for Christ. If you don't have love for Christ, you're not a Christian. You're not a, you can't possibly be a real minister. But the minister must excel in Christ, be exemplary in their love for Christ, or you won't be, do the job right. You must excel in love for Christ and love for his cause. There's no point in suffering for it like Paul did if you don't love it that much. You must excel in love for the sheep. If you don't love the sheep, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to come to you. This must be evident to the congregation and will be the very will be very conductive to edification. Paul gives expression to this love. Our heart is enlarged. The more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Second Corinthians twelve fifteen. They were having a problem not loving Paul not loving the ministers. Our heart is enlarged. Six Being so affectionate and desirous of you, we were willing to have impart, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. First Thessalonians 2.8 this love towards the congregation must not be motivated by a mere desire for reciprocal love, nor be the result of some natural attractiveness they have, or desires, you know, things like they're beautiful and you want to be around beautiful people, or they're rich and you want to have their gifts, nothing like that. It should consist solely in the desire for their spiritual welfare. This love must proceed from love for Christ, if whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constrains us, Second Corinthians 5, 13 and 14. Such a frame will cause one to interact with the members as a friendly father. But we are gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children, First Thessalonians 2, 7. Yeah, we, the minister, should be speaking the truth in love. Nowhere will you fall, find Paul raging and rampaging against the flock, as some ministers do. He was gentle as a nursing mother. Even though he was rebuking the Corinthians in his first epistle rather firmly, he, he writes to them, I did not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. 
That is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my way in ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. First Corinthians 4, 14 through 17. You note again, he stresses that he teaches them everywhere in every church. There's not one one gospel for the idolater and one gospel for the Jew, who the Pharisee, and one gospel for the elite Greek philosopher. There's the same truth for all of them. Paul teaching the whole counsel of God was the same everywhere, regardless of their cultural or religious biases. Everyone needs that whole truth and nothing but the truth so that they can know and please the one true living God. He says that as a way of introduction to the next verse. You are not restricted by us. You're restricted by your own affections. Again, you got to love the Greek here. And I think the King James does a pretty good job of putting it straight out. You are not straightened in us but you are straightened in your own bowels. The ESV reasonably gives us an interpretation and idiomatic translation of the passage in saying, you're not restricted by us, but restricted by your own affections. That's what they're trying to say, even though we don't think of the words in quite the same way anymore. In other words, the problem wasn't with Paul and company. As he he had said earlier, we have put no stumbling block before you. We have worked very hard for that. And he lists the troubles that he'd gone through. And we still, we don't rage and rampage because you've caused some of these troubles yourselves. We continue to preach the whole counsel of God in love and hope that you will lead a better life in Christ Jesus. The problem not being with Paul, the idea is that they weren't brought in into any straits or any difficulties by Paul and his people. They did not afflict the people in any way. They did not distress them. They did not fill them with anguish. They did not cause them trouble. They just brought them the truths of God's word. In other words, we put no obstacle in anyone's way. We've done nothing wrong for you to hate us. We've done nothing wrong for you to despise us and turn away from us to find other teachers. We've spent our entire time here serving the gospel message, serving them and loving them in, in godly biblical ways. The problem, he's saying, is with your hearts. They were constrained by all the godless clamor against Paul, his one, in Paul's one true gospel that could save them. Indeed, remember, it was the gospel that Paul preached that did save them. We looked at that back in Uh, we'll get to that later. We looked at that in, earlier in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians. Some certainly are the people who are referred to in First Corinthians one twenty three. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Others were perhaps trained by the ideals of the Areopagus and scholasticism, which he talks about in First Corinthians one eleven through thirteen. It's been reported to me in Chloe, by Chloe's house that 
There's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Are you baptized into the name of Paul? Paul is calling them to think about the foolishness of their divisions, but in the Greek ideas of following a teacher and being a disciple, you pick the best one. And their standard for what made one best was completely wrong. The pagan standard didn't apply. The best one was, of course, the one God had appointed to preach and teach the whole counsel of God in truth and love, and that wasn't these false teachers. That would never be anyone who wants followers for themselves instead of for Christ. Paul also says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That's more next week's message, Lord willing. Wake up from your drunken stupor and do what is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame, 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34. You know, why do they have no knowledge of God? Well, they close their ears to hearing it, or... They're listening to teachers who omit the things they don't want to hear, so they never have to worry about it or think about it or be convicted about it. And they don't know the truth of God. All of the usual suspects are in play here when somebody has little love for God and little love for their pastor or teacher who's teaching them the truth. Some, it's pride. They don't want somebody else telling them they're in the wrong. They can't stand that. Some, it's really the love of the things of the world. What they have, what they know, what they believe. John speaks of that. You remember, we've looked at this passage many times. Do not love the world and the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, it's very easy for us sitting in a pew, listening to a pastor or a teacher or reading a book to realize that what's being taught is above me, that I am the inferior here. I am hearing it and being instructed, and this is something I'm not living out in my life, and it hurts our pride. Sometimes it's saying that the things we really love, like the flesh and the pleasures of the flesh, or the things of this world, the properties, the pride of life, all of that is being attacked as worthless and useless and a distraction. And you know, brings us back to that story of the rich young ruler who loved his wealth more than he loved God. And Jesus, to point that out to him, said, you want to follow me, then go and donate everything you have to the poor and follow me. Showing, Telling him that your love for your things stands in the way of your love for God. When we were, all of those things affect us, and that is why our heart is closed or our love is lessened significantly to the truth and the pastors who teach it. And you need to fix your heart And that is the next thing he goes on to in the final verse of our section 13. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. 
Now, as to children, it's not an, an insult. Many people will take it that way today. If you tell them, child, listen to me, they're not going to listen to another word you say because you've insulted them by calling them a child. Paul is not insulting them, and it wouldn't have been understood as an insult. You know, as we've already seen, he was a father to them in Christ, and as a loving father to, in Christ to his little children, the believers, the children of God, he is reaching out to them. Remember, he talks about himself being like a father to them. Though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. I became your father through the gospel. He's speaking to them as their leader who led them to Christ, as a father in Christ. And he's speaking of the fact that he brought them the true gospel, which the Holy Spirit used to bring about the conversion of their souls. He mentions this back in chapter 3 of Second Corinthians. He says, You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written in our hearts, to be known and read by all, that you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. Second uh, Corinthians 3, 2-3. This is a key principle that Paul is using in his argument against these divisive scholastics. It was through the true gospel that the Spirit of God worked in their hearts, and brought about their salvation, and everyone can see that they are now a new creation in Christ. That was the gospel that Paul brought, not the false gospel that these others are bringing. It was the conviction of sin that Paul brought, not the absence of conviction that these false teachers are bringing. And so they should know and they should see that they're children of God through the work of Paul and have some reciprocal love for Paul. Paul is making this appeal to them as their loving father to his beloved yet somewhat troublesome children. And speaking this way, he's really softening his reproof. He's not insulting anybody. In return, he wants them to show that reciprocal love. Look at how I have loved you. Look at what I've done for you. You know, why are you leaving me in the truth and going off after these false teachers? Paul sacrificed everything, and in the end, even his own life, that people might hear this true gospel and be saved. And he was sacrificing everything in order to bring them that whole counsel of God that they might be able to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This was all for their benefit. By not reciprocating his love, but turning to these who rejected the truth and lorded it over them, lorded it over their faith, and really harming themselves, and they were harming the ministry Paul was trying to do among them. They were the stumbling stone in front of people going to heaven. And he's calling on them to turn from that and show that love to me that I have shown to you. Widen your hearts as I have enlarged my own. Enlarge your heart. In other words, swell with that love for God and the love for his children. You know, if we love God, we've talked about this before, then we will love everyone created in his image. And all believers are created in his image. And the more our faith grows, the closer that image is to Christ, and the more lovely we should be to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul being who he was, 
and what he had done for them should have been greatly loved. And they shouldn't have been turning to these false teachers. He comes again in verses 14 through 18 to talk about, or 14 through chapter 7, verse 1, really, to talk about these false teachers, and we'll look at that again next week. Now let us go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder that it is a great treasure to hear the word of truth purely and truly and explained correctly. Pray, Lord, that we would always hunger and thirst after someone who will explain it to us verse by verse, precept by precept, teaching us the things we need to know to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Whether it be a pastor in the pulpit of our church or a pastor in the pulpit of another church we see on YouTube or Sermon Audio or a book we read. Help us, Lord, to treasure those truths, to be enriched and encouraged by them, and to turn our hearts wholly to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.